So we're in Malachi, the second week in the prophecy of Malachi. If you're here and you feel like you don't know the Bible super well, or you come into an environment like this, and they'll be like, turn to Malachi, and you're like, I have no idea where Malachi is. Growth in anything is honesty with where you are. So I say this all the time. If you're willing to learn, if you want to learn something, be willing to be as stupid as you really are in anything. Right? So feel totally free that if you have a hard copy Bible, open it up, go to the table of context, look at Malachi, and turn there. This is how we grow. Many of you just have a phone and you'll type in Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And I really encourage you to do that. If you're a person that really is trying to learn more about the Bible, I'll just challenge you, bring a hard copy Bible with you because a lot of times, even when you're looking in the table of contents and you actually have to move with it, it'll help you learn. So Malachi chapter one, we're gonna be in verses six, one chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse nine. I'm actually gonna ask you again to stand as I read Malachi 1, six. And in the history of the church, Many times when the public reading of scripture happened, people would rise to their feet for this reason. It's like when a judge enters a courtroom and they say, all rise and everybody rise. It's to show honor and reverence to God and to his word because we always sit under the word of God because it's the authoritative word of God. So Malachi chapter 1 Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you to speak this morning. Uh, God, I pray that accuracy to what you want to say would happen this morning. And God, I hold fast to the truth that you tell us that your word will stand and it will do all that you've purposed for it. You have purposes for your word this morning to individual lives. God, I know you'll fulfill it. You have purposes for marriages and for families. You have purposes for questions to be answered. God, you want to stand with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. But God, for those of us in this room who are just too comfortable, who've gotten too used to ways that lead to darkness and to death, God, I pray that you disrupt us as any good friend would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm the father of four kids, 14, 12, now nine, and soon to be eight, March 1st. And I'll tell you this, as the father of growing children, I thank God for hand-me-downs, right? So if you've raised kids ever, you know, like you want to buy them this great stuff and then you decide early in your parenting life, like I'm going to buy them something really good. And then it's like three months later, it doesn't fit them anymore. I thank God that when that happens to my 14-year-old, I can be like, great, now it's Yale's, the 12-year-old's, and just hand it to him. And you begin to fall in love with these places like Kid to Kid, which is a secondhand store. And you don't even really care if there's a thread out of one of the shirts or if the shoes that you get have no more traction on them. You're like, we live in Arizona. Like, it barely rains. Who cares? You won't slip. Just put on the shoes. But it's far better, 
for the family budget and family economics to have hand-me-downs in second-hand stores, it's far better for the family budget than it is for God. God doesn't accept hand-me-down worship. He doesn't accept second-hand offerings. This is exactly what Malachi begins to talk about today, and he points it directly at the priests. The priests were the leaders of worship at the time for the people of God, the nation of Israel. The priests were the leaders, and God focuses directly on the priests in the passage we're going to look at today, which makes it awkward for me. Because typically, as you're preparing a message, you're thinking like, how do I make this applicable? How do I drive into the people? And yet, this whole passage is driving into me. And God was very clear to go, actually, Tyler, you never should prepare a message, but thinking about yourself first, and not just the application of the people. But I can't even get away from it this morning. The whole passage is directed at leaders who are seeking to lead the people of God, of which I am one, Tim Mon is one. Paul Artino, Jeremy Olam, who was just up here as one. Many of you function in different roles of leaders uh, inside this church. And, but this is really focused on leaders. So why does leadership matter? And why does it matter in the midst of the people of God in worship? Well, leadership matters because leaders have followers. It's that simple. But in the role of the people of God, when you're seeking to lead the people of God, there's something I really want you to understand, and it's this idea that theologians call federal headship. You don't need to necessarily know what that means, but it's basically representation. So early on in the Bible, when you're reading the book of Genesis, Adam is a representative of the human race. So when Adam's called to obey God and he doesn't, the Apostle Paul tells us that through one man's sin, sin and death spread to the whole of creation and all of human beings. So in the midst of a sinful world now, God doesn't lose. So he calls a man who was a pagan at the time named Abraham. Now, if you grew up in the church, you learned this language or this song, Father Abraham and many sons. You've learned that song. So Abraham was to be the father of many nations. And the way in which God was going to make him the father of many nations was to make him the father of one nation, which is the nation of Israel. And then through this nation, the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay, you following me? This is important. So through Abraham, now a nation. And that nation was to be a leading nation. A nation amongst all other nations that was given a law of God, God's word, that when they obeyed that law, Amongst the other nations, they were displaying to the nations in their lives, there is a way. In a world that said there were all kinds of other ways, they're saying, no, there's a way established by the one true God. His name in the Old Testament is Yahweh. And the call upon Israel, the call for them to pray, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other. He is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That call upon the nation of Israel was the call to the whole world, 
all nations, but they were to model, this is the way. Yahweh's the way. Yahweh is the truth. In a world of all kinds of other truths, they were saying, no, watch us. In the way we talk, in the way we think, in what we love, and in how we act, we are going to display to you the truth. Not that there's many truths, but there's a way and there's a truth. And this way and this truth lead to life. So Israel was a representative of what life looked like under the kingship of God. Now inside Israel, there were leaders to show Israel how to live. And those leaders were called priests. And the role of a priest came out of the line of a man named Levi, the calling of a man named Levi. And here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 4, he says, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. So what was the covenant to Levi? Hear this, because the covenant to Levi was the calling of every priest. The calling of every priest was this. My covenant with him, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, with him was one of life and peace. And I gave it to him. So now the calling of the priest was to breed life and peace into the community. Now, how did they do that? It was a covenant of fear. Fear of what? Fear of me, who's speaking, God. Fear of God. This is what the psalmist say, says. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What does fear mean? It means honor and respect. Like, we said this just when we were reading the passage, like when a judge enters the room, there's a notice, a recognition of authority, and they say, all rise. If you're a Yankee fan, you're like, Aaron Judge. One person laughed. That means a bunch of you don't know about the New York Yankees. So there's a really good player for the New York Yankees named Aaron Judge, just like Judge. So they wear shirts to honor Aaron Judge, and it says, all rise. And it's like you're honoring and acknowledging Aaron Judge's ability to be an amazing baseball player, and he's like as big as Andre the Giant. He's huge. But they say, all rise. And this happens right now. So when President Trump walks in a room, he's the president of the United States, um, right? He's, he has all of these different roles, even uh, the commander-in-chief, right? And he leads this huge military. And so when he walks into a room, people rise. It's this acknowledgement of authority, ultimately. So the priests were given a role to establish a fear of God, and a fear of God brings about life and peace. And it says, Levi specifically lived into this. He stood in awe of my name, true instruction. So he stood in awe, which led him to do teach true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Remember that phrase. So they're supposed to lead people to God. When you're led to God, you turn away from iniquity. This 
Turning away from iniquity, that's turning away from sin. When you turn away from sin and to God, the biblical word for that is repentance. It's a turning, a 180 away from sin and God. And I like to always say, God and sin are opposite directions. So when you turn to God and go to God, you turn away from sin. But the priest was the leader and the mouthpiece of the Lord of hosts, it says. So go back to chapter 1, trying you to understand why he's focusing on the priests. This was their calling, to lead people to life and peace by leading them to God, away from sin and to God. So God now looks at the priests and he says, so a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I then am a father, where's my honor? He's saying, priests, you would teach people right now that the children should honor their father, and yet I'm a father, where's my honor? You're not honoring me. You would communicate to people that we are servants of the one true God. He is our master, and yet where is my fear? Because servants have a healthy fear of their masters. And then he says it again, says the Lord of hosts, so we read it in chapter 2, now we came back to chapter 1. The priest is the mouthpiece, the leader to direct people to the Lord of hosts. And here, it says he's the one who's saying this, the Lord of hosts. Now you may be familiar with that phrase, you may be unfamiliar with that phrase. Some of you have sung it in songs before or heard it taught in the Bible. What does the Lord of hosts mean? Well, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, the vast majority of times the phrase Lord of hosts is used, he says, the God of angel armies. So those who lead very powerful militaries, the commander-in-chief of the United States, Vladimir Putin of Russia, right? the leaders of North Korea, the leaders of Iran, when they lead armies and they're the leader, they walk into a room and there's honor and fear and people rise. Now, God here is saying to the priests, so people do that for earthly authorities. Later on, he's going to speak about governors in particular. You'll do it for earthly rulers who lead human armies, but I'm the God of angel armies. The Bible speaks about God in this way. It says that God is the one who spoke the whole world into existence. Everything you can see was created by God, and not just created by God, but created for God. If you say, well, where in the Bible is this? It's the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 1, where people are speaking about the supremacy of Christ in particular. But all things that we can see are created by and for God. But he doesn't just say all things that we can see. He says all things visible and those things invisible were created by him and, let me just say this loud for emphasis, for him. And then he goes on and doesn't just say they were created. Everything we can see and can't see was created by him and for him. But he also communicates that everything holds together. Or in God, all things consist. The book of Hebrews says he upholds the world by his powerful word. 
So when the powerful word of God that upholds everything we can see, including, by the way, your body right now, is being upheld by the breath of God, and you go, oh, really? And I would say, well, then what's upholding your body? And some of us are like, well, not much anymore, right? Like the older we get. But he's upholding your body by his powerful world. He's upholding this building. This God who is the God who created all things and sustains all things, who's the God of angel armies, whether dominions or powers or rulers or authorities, Colossians 1 says, he's supreme. So you honor the commander-in-chief of the United States. You honor your governors. You honor your bosses. But the Lord of hosts says, where's my honor? I'm a father. Where's my fear? I'm not just a master. I'm the master of masters. I'm not just a king. I'm the king of kings. I'm not just a lord. I'm the lord of lords says the Lord of hosts, and then he directs it again to the priests. To you, O priests, who despise my name. He doesn't just stop and go, who disregarded my name, who forgot about their calling. He's like, you despise me. And they go, what? How have we despised you? God, you're saying we despise you? How? Have we despised your name? And he says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And he says, by saying, the Lord's table may be despised. You're offering hand-me-down worship, is what God's saying. But they're confused. You know, it's really important for us to see here, very specifically, very important for me to see here because I'm implicated by this as a leader, but few people think they pollute the worship of God. Now, I know in this room, pretty much every single person in here, if people said, do people, are there people out there who pollute the worship of God? You'd go, I know them. And every time your finger would go, it's them. Very few people, no matter how they worship, if they worship in a superstitious way or they worship in a formal way and if they worship in a casual way or they worship in a traditional way, very few people are willing to say, I'm the one who pollutes the worship of God. And far too many of us will call people leaders because they wear the badge leader. And far too many of us are willing to say we are Christians just because we come to a church. C.S. Lewis was the one who famously said, sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian than me standing in a garage makes me a car. And Jesus spoke about this. Jesus was speaking to many, but many times focused on leaders, and he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who says they're a follower of God is in fact a follower of God. Not everybody who says they are a leader in fact is a leader. Not everybody who holds the title of a leader, no matter how high of a leader or how low of a leader, is in fact a leader. And here he's saying, just because you say you're a priest doesn't mean you're a priest. 
He says, in fact, what you're doing is the opposite of what Levi did. You're playing fast and loose with what you communicate from God's word. And the biggest issue is you are offering sacrifices that are blind and blemished. You're offering fundamentally secondhand, hand-me-down worship. Why? Because it's easy. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Would you present that to your governor? Now, when we present our second best to our governors and our governing authorities, what do we call that? Tax evasion. <laughs> right? The IRS comes after you for stuff like that. You fear them enough to pay your taxes, and yet you as priests, the leaders, will offer hand-me-down worship to the God of angel armies? You hold the best back because in the end, you give what's easiest. Because it's costly. It's consequential. It's uncomfortable to offer God the best. So what's the correlation? Because you all didn't walk in with animals today, and I don't have an altar up here where I'm making sacrifices. So what are our sacrifices? What is the best that God's asking of us? Well, after communicating 11 chapters of the beautiness of what God has done on behalf of the whole world, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and this is brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because God is merciful. Based upon the mercy and the love and the grace of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Now, hold on. I like doing this, and some of you may have heard me say this before, but if we were going to ask, what is our spiritual worship? Many of us would go, well, it's me closing my eyes and getting rid of all the distractions of the real concrete material world and getting out of my body into the spiritual aspect of worship. And Paul goes, eh, wrong. Wrong. Singing's great. Look around. See the people around you. Feel your actual body. Feel your emotions in the midst of it. But in your day in and day out life, you want to know what worship is? Offering a living sacrifice. He's like, well, if you're reading these words or you're listening to these words right now, you're breathing and you're living. So offer your bodies, your bodies as living sacrifices. So let me ask you this. What is it that you don't do in your body? This is going to get awkward. What is it that you don't do in your body? Nothing. I sleep in my body. I dream in my body. I wake up and brush my teeth in my body. I drive to work in my body. I work in my body. I communicate with my children in my body. I do recreation in my body. So what's Paul saying? What's the sacrifice that you're supposed to offer? Your life. So we wake up and we go, all rise before the God of angel armies. We walk to the bathroom. We go, thank God I have a toothbrush. Thank God that I'm brushing my teeth. 
He's saying, do everything you do, offer it. And so now I'm saying to myself, okay, how does this apply? He's applying this to priests. He's saying, Tyler, it's everything in your life. The offering you offer is how you offer yourself in fatherhood before God. How you offer yourself as an individual before God. There's a phrase that I heard early on in my Christian life that's haunted me ever since. And it says this, who you are alone with God, that you are and nothing more. Folks, I'm going to be totally honest with you, that terrifies me. Because I lust as big as any of you lust. I blow up on my children as much as any of you blow up on your children. I covet things like you covet things. And I'm a pastor. Right? I'm the one that's meant to usher people into the reality of God. In this sense of me bringing before God my body. And then he's saying, you are one of them. In Romans 12, verse 2, right after he said, present your bodies, he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. All time, people will go, well, I wonder what the will of God is for my life. I wonder what the will of God is for the situation. He's saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice and don't be conformed to the world because the world is what swept the priests away to offer secondhand worship. The problem with the priests is they were just like the world, just like the people, and in the end, they allowed the people to continue to do it. They showed partiality to allow the people to offer hand-me-down worship. Remember, good for the family budget, bad for the worship of the one true God. They allowed it to happen. Their problem was they were just like them, I'm just like you, and allow the people to offer it. He says, you wouldn't allow the governor to do that. And then verse 9, chapter 1, and now entreat the favor of God. Seek God. Acknowledge that we're wrong. He that he may be gracious to us, but with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts, says the God of angel armies. And then he says, oh, that there were among you one who would shut the doors. One of you priests would have just shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Here's what he's saying. He's like, you're the leaders. Where are the leaders who will stand up and lock the doors and go over my dead body? Will we offer false worship before a God who's worthy of our fear, honor, and respect. Shut the doors. Where are the leaders who go, we'll shut down the church before we dishonor God? And I sit preparing this passage. I'm like, Lord, do, do I have the courage? In, in the end, is it, is it my own courage or do I have the faith to stand up to do that? Why is it that our leaders so often will show partiality to the point that they won't shut the doors but he's saying, oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors. I don't know if you know this, but there's quite a controversy happening in Major League Baseball right now. Did anybody know that? I don't know how many of you like sports. I've used some sports illustrations. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but I do a lot. I love baseball, and there's a huge controversy right now around cheating. And people are like, oh, wow, really? Like baseball cheats? Um, but basically, in the last couple weeks, A.J. Hinch, who's the head baseball coach of the Houston Astros, was fired because the Astros were proved to be cheating in their win against the Dodgers in the World Series and um, 
The Red Sox, also in their World Series, were now said to be cheating. So Alex Cora was fired. The Red Sox. That's why actually Neil Pitchell went home sick today. Um, so, and then Carlos Beltran, who was a part of it, didn't even get to coach basically a practice with the Mets, and he got fired. Well, when A.J. Hinch, the Houston Astros head coach, said, listen, the reality is I wasn't the one doing it, but I didn't stop it. And the MLB said, and you're right, and you're gone. Like one year suspension, then the Astros came along and fired him. And ultimately what people were saying was, you're the leader. You're the head coach. Why didn't you stand up and shut the door and go, no more on my watch? Well, why? Because it was easier. Because we could win. Well, why were they offering blemished bulls and goats? Because they could win. Their bank accounts could be thicker. Their lives could be more comfortable. The leaders of the people of God could be liked a lot more by everybody. They begin to think, well, if, if we get too hard on this and say we don't want secondhand offerings, then no offerings may come in. And if no offerings come in to the house that feeds my family, nothing might be in my family. He goes, so Cody Bellinger, who's actually from Chandler, Arizona, went to Hamilton, was a part of the Dodgers team that got beat, and he said, if the players don't have consequences themselves, we've tainted and tarnished the integrity of the game. Now, I would be one to rise and go, I agree with that. I agree. Like, if you have little buttons buzzing you when a guy's throwing a slider, it's like, that's kind of an advantage, right? That's kind of an advantage. It would taint and tarnish the integrity of the game. But folks, we're talking about baseball. And I love baseball. Here, God's looking at the leaders and he's going, we're talking about the God of angel armies. God. And there's this moment where we all have to ask ourselves, me first and foremost, because this passage is directed to me, is, is there fear of God? Is there a reverence of God? Is there an acknowledgement of his honor? Is there a recognition that only when God is honored is the life that's brought about in life and peace that God so desperately wants the world to experience doesn't get there without an acknowledgement and a surrender of God? This moment of being a pastor and wearing a badge isn't about my paycheck. It isn't about my comfort as a leader. It isn't about my convenience. You're liking me. Isn't why God called leaders of the faith community. It isn't why he called you. He called us fundamentally that we might experience life in peace, which is why the apostles in the early church in the book of Acts are speaking to all kinds of people and they use this big word that so many of us in a world that take ourselves far too seriously and believe we're our own authority don't like the word repent. But the apostles say repent that times of refreshing may come. Now how many of us in here, including all the leaders that this passage would speak to, Aspire and desire times of refreshing. That sounds pretty good, right? Like you go on vacations for that. You jump in a pool in the summer to be refreshed. 
Many of you meditate and do yoga to be refreshed. Some of you have a glass of wine at the end of a night to be refreshed. Many of you get angry because you're not refreshed. There's an acknowledgement of being dry and parched and cracking inside. You want times of refreshing. And we go, yes, it isn't found in a glass of wine. It isn't found in a new job. It's found in repentance and a turning to the one true God. And God's going, but the priests are even here. Verse 12, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table's polluted and it's fruit, that the food is despised, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. They scoff at it. God's asking for our best. And now he begins to go and he talks about a cursing, that you are cursed fundamentally because it's, you believe it's more blessed to keep it than it is to give it. That's the counteracting whole narrative of the Bible is the Bible's teaching you that fundamentally in God's world, which is his world whether we recognize it or not, the beauty is found in giving, not in receiving. Which is why when Paul, the apostle, leaves Ephesus, he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We give what's easiest because we believe what we keep is what's best. And God says it's in giving that you will find times of refreshing. So they bring these offerings and then God says this. God gets pretty severe here. And he says in verse three, chapter two, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and I'll spread dung on your faces. Do you know what dung is? It's dung, right? I'll spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. Now, I'm not trained to be dramatic here, but this is exactly what the, pa the passage is saying. In the book of Hebrews, they talk about what sacrifices, and they'll say the sacrifice of bulls and goats will never take away sin. So he says, I'll take the dung of bulls, bull dung, and I'll shove it in your face to show you these offerings are the dung of goats. Now you go, that's pretty radical. Like, why would God do that? Like, is he an egomaniac? And he goes, the role of the priest was to bring life and peace. When you think it's best, what's best, what you will be happy in is keeping rather than in giving, in making yourself the final and full authority, that leads to darkness and death not life and liberty. He said, I wouldn't even be God. And then the author of the Proverbs makes this statement. True friends, true friends are faithful to wound you when you need wounding. Now the God who loves you and knows you at the core of your being is not in love because of love gonna allow you to believe the best is the easiest that the greatest is the most comfortable. He's gonna call the greatest the greatest. He's gonna call life, life, the way, the way, truth, truth. And so he says, repent. Leaders, lead your people into repentance. Don't show partiality. Now let me end by saying this. Why would leaders like me show partiality? 
Partiality, what I mean is if you read the end of chapter two, he speaks about walk in his ways and don't show partiality. Partiality is like, when it comes to what God said, why would we not just say it and expect God's word to be God's word? The first one is we don't measure up to it. And so you feel kind of like a hypocrite when you do it. You, and then you get to this point where you're like, well, I want him to like me. I don't want to cut it straight. Like, because if you wound them, they'll think you aren't doing it in love. And so it's self-protective is one reason. And then the other one, which is related to it, is people don't want it. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me first say this before I read this, because I don't want this to sound like, well, we don't do it because you guys are so bad. I don't do it because I'm so bad, because <laughs> I'm sinful. But Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Don't do that. If you ever think I sit up here and don't cut it straight, I'm not serving you, leave. You're justified in leaving. If you ever feel like I'm not cutting it straight, you're justified in being a Berean and saying, hey, can you help me with that? Because I don't think that's right. But don't, like I'll say this to myself and you, don't just accumulate people around yourself who will tell you what you want to hear. That's not love, that's hate. That's not love, that's hate. And so I end this whole time studying and thinking about this, and honestly, this is what I think, is like, I'm not worthy to this task. I don't want this responsibility. I don't measure up to this responsibility. I don't know how to provide pure sacrifices, living sacrifices of bodily reality in my own life, let alone in theirs. I get scared enough of having to give an account before God in the end. I don't want to give an account for you, like the book of Hebrews says I'll do, right? Like, I... I I read your guys' social media posts, right? I don't, I'm like, I, I can't even do it. God said to me, Tyler, remember Hebrews chapter 10. Like, where do I go to get the motivation towards the holiness of God ultimately for repentance? And he said this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. They offered, even if they were perfect sacrifices, the priests just kept offering them, kept sacrificing kept sacrificing, but those could never take away sin. But when Christ, Jesus, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what was the all-time single sacrifice for sins? He offered his living body as a sacrifice for sins, and his living body became a dead body that the sins of all of us who repent and believe. He offers a one time, all the time, single sacrifice for sins. And when it finished, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Because it was done. While all the other priests continued to stand, offering sacrifice after a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. And God is saying to me, Tyler, you can think all you want about, shore yourself up, get better, get better, do this, do that. It won't happen. Rest in the seated, finished work of Jesus. Be willing to openly and be honest to say, I don't measure up. I don't measure up as a Christian, let alone as a pastor. 
We don't measure up, but God, we want to obey you and beseech God for his grace. And because God is gracious, in the face of Jesus Christ, God forgives. God empowers with this Holy Spirit. God enables us to fulfill what he commands by his power, not by our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. God, on behalf of everybody in this room, I just want to pray for the leaders of the redemption churches. God, I want to confess on my behalf and on all our behalf sin, failure to be Christians and failure to lead Christians. And God, we ask you for the power that comes through the finished work of Christ. God, I pray that as we leave, you would empower us as a church to be praying for our leaders that we might be found faithful. In Christ's name, amen.